Beware and prepare for something spine tingling, something horrifying, pure terror to your eardrums. This is Epic Film Guys B Side. We're here. Rarely does a movie maintain as indelible a legacy as that of Poltergeist. When horror icon Toby Hooper and young maverick Steven Spielberg teamed up nearly 40 years ago, no one could have predicted their collaboration would become one of the most celebrated films of all time. Today, audiences are still fascinated by the film, the mysterious behind the scenes, urban legends surrounding it, the continuing debate of who really directed it, and the way that it changed the way moviegoers viewed horror forever. It still stands the test of time and holds up as one of the best ever to haunt the genre. So tonight, we're celebrating the movie that gave us the shivers, kept us awake late at night, and made us fear what may be lurking inside the closet and under the bed. Join us, won't you? This is Poltergeist. Ooh, I just got got chills. Did it get a little chilly in here? It got a little cold in here. I might need to go grab my hoodie or something over here. Uh, it's time to do this, buddy. Boy sauce. We're here to do a surprise B-side episode for our listeners. Poltergeist. And I'm going to throw it your way first and foremost here because you and I have talked about possibly, you know, discussing this movie on an episode for quite a long time and we're finally sitting down to do it we wanted to do this as a surprise to our audience so surprise this is for you guys um you know after the amazing reaction you guys gave us you know to our 40th anniversary episode of friday the 13th we really wanted to follow that up with something special for you guys a really special treat so your first time experiencing this movie loy sauce when was it do you remember it? Was it special to you? Tell me all about it. Absolutely, Justin. Well, I, I feel like I'm going to sound like a broken record because Blockbuster, baby. <laughs> like That's where a lot of my filmic love and knowledge came from, is just scouring, browsing the, the shelves at Blockbuster Video. And my dad would let me rent a movie every weekend I would spend with him. And this was one that I picked out. Because you know, you know what? On the tape, I saw Steven Spielberg's name on it, and having just watched oh, that did it. After having just watched E.T. and Jurassic Park, Poltergeist was next for me, and just completely fell in love with it. Completely terrified me, and it's one that I'll never forget. But how about you, Justin? Your first time viewing Poltergeist? Well, I just have to comment before I mention my experience with the movie at a young age. That's crazy. Your, your dad was bold. He, he must have known what Poltergeist was. And granted, it is a PG rated movie. But to let a young one rent that movie and watch it. I mean, it is Steven Spielberg. I mean, that does enforce some kind of comforting feeling to the parent. Like, oh, it's that guy that made those movies. It's entirely fine until your kid wakes you up at two in the morning. Like, <laughs> I can't sleep. There's a fucking clown under my bed, dad, please. Um, you know. But for me, it was, and I go back to this too, so we're both broken records. You don't have to feel bad about it. This is not one that I personally rented on VHS. My parents were not all about letting me rent horror at all. 
whatsoever, no matter whose name was on the title. Um, and for me, it was like one of those late nights. And it's always got to be a mention of TBS or TNT, because this movie really screams summertime to me. And I find myself always watching it when it starts to get warm, like right around May or June, which is its anniversary, of course. Uh, it, it, for me, it's, it's kind of a nostalgic feeling, you know, and for that that time there in the film when it takes place. So it's time, baby. We're doing this thing. Voice sauce. If there is any person on this planet, which there may be, you never know, that doesn't know what Poltergeist is. Show them some love, baby. Tell them what this is all about. So the story centers around the Freeling family who live an idyllic life uh, until their household is plagued by a series of bizarre occurrences. Uh, Silverware bends, furniture begins to move of its own volition, and the youngest daughter, five-year-old Carol Ann, begins conversing with the static on the television set. And of course, if this were me, uh, at this point I'd be running out of the house screaming, but of course the Freelings stay. And as the phenomena become more and more malevolent, the spirits tighten their grip on the house, holding Carol Ann prisoner in a spectral void and leaving the family no choice but to cross a terrifying threshold to get her back. Yes, sir. And I have to comment real quick. This is probably the most prestigious film that we've covered on our B-side series, would you say? I would say so. We've covered a lot of trash and garbage, Justin. How dare you call it that? We love trash and garbage, though. So I guess if the shoe fits, wear that shit. Um, it's also PG, as I said a little while ago. So it's not an R-rated movie. And as you pointed out to me before we got into this discussion, no one dies in this movie. It's a horror film and no one dies in it. So it's it, it's just crazy to think about when we jump in. But there's so much to unravel with this thing. But really, where I think you need to start is the background of how this movie came to be. Um, and of course, that age old discussion, that debate, if you will, who directed this thing? Now, Toby Hooper's name is on the title as director, but it's been widely known that Spielberg had a, a, his hand in the cookie jar the entire time. He was on set for the majority of this movie, and a lot of people say Spielberg directed it. So, I mean... What do you think about this whole thing? Well, it's tough because, you know, Spielberg definitely, this was his baby in a way. This and E.T. he was developing at around the same time because due to the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Spielberg really wanted to explore a sequel to that. Um, and his idea was malevolent aliens terrorize a family. And this story developed into the modern take on the haunted house subgenre that we got with Poltergeist. And then he decided to revamp the alien idea to the decidedly more family-friendly E.T., the extraterrestrial, which he was working on simultaneously to Poltergeist. So there's rumor, and I don't know if this is fact or not, but there was a studio contractual commitment that Spielberg had uh, for E.T. where he could not uh, direct at the same time another project. So Spielberg worked on Poltergeist and E.T. back to back, basically, but he couldn't work on it at the same time. So he hired Toby Hooper, who um, he was impressed with his work on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he hired him to direct the project. It's tough because Spielberg, from all accounts, supervised the storyboard process, the pre-production process, visual effects, editing, music, casting, all of that. So he, he was there supervising all of that. But 
and this is according to a lot of the actors who were directed by Hooper on the set. Uh, Mick Garris, who was a publicist and visited the set, often says this is a Toby Hooper film. And Spielberg's involvement on the set was more out of enthusiasm for his baby than a desire to, you know, wrap an iron grip around the production. But it's been hotly contested over the years. Whether, like, who had more creative control over this movie? I mean, when I watch this movie, it screams Spielberg. To me, it feels like a Spielberg movie. When you try to dissect it, you can pinpoint moments that feel more like a Toby Hooper film or a Toby Hooper moment. But overall, it's directed like a Spielberg movie, and it feels like an Amblin movie. And his fingerprints are all over the thing. He came out and said, quote, Toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would just nod in agreement. And then co-producer Frank Marshall, who was on the set a lot, said the creative force of the movie was Steven Spielberg. Uh, there was even a moment in one of the interviews doing press for the film where Steven came out and flatly admitted, I directed the movie, which he quickly came out after the fact and said, I, you know, I apologize for that. T Toby's all over this thing. This is his movie. So I basically, and I, I know what you're talking about with the Mick Garris comments. Uh, he did a whole episode um, where he discussed this because he was a really good friend of Toby Hooper's. And if it wasn't for Steven Spielberg um, and the amazing story show that he had, that Mick Garris wouldn't be in Hollywood today. So he did visit the set and he said, the movie is equal parts Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg. And overall, that's really where I like to leave it. That's what I like to think of it as. Collaboration. It, a, I mean, it's, it is a collaboration. There's two great minds that came together. And like you said perfectly, he hired Toby because he couldn't make the movie himself. And he loved the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the guy could obviously make a terrifying fucking movie. But here you could see that they came together. And th there's no doubt in my mind that both of these men are equal parts responsible for the classic that we're talking about today. So, I mean, and at the end of the day, does it really matter? Like it's a great movie anyway, who cares? Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, and it is Toby Hooper's highest grossing movie ever. It's, I think it's just a thing that it's, it's that lore of the behind the scenes that definitely intrigues the hell out of me. Even right now, definitely. I still want to know more about it, but unfortunately God rest his soul. The legend that he is Toby Hooper is no longer with us. And when these questions were asked, he usually, he was a very shy guy you know, not not a pompous, egotistical asshole at all. He would just shy away from that question. He didn't really like to talk about it. And no one's going to ask Spielberg about fucking Poltergeist in circa 2020 anyway. Well, well, yeah, it's something it's something that is interesting to me because there's very little about the production that's documented on the Blu-ray there's hardly any special features. It's only this Bro, half, hour, half hour documentary that's kind of like kooky. Uh, don't even piss me off here. That those special features are so disrespectful. I have the special edition anniversary digi book, which is beautiful, but then you don't put any special features on the film at all whatsoever that have to do with the film. That's what I bought it for. Come on, you know it's. That's why, you know, and I'll, I'll definitely reference this later on uh, when we get to that part of our discussion, but Cursed Films, which is a Shutter series that debuted recently, did a brilliant job of covering the behind the scenes on this movie uh, to the extent that was allowed and to the information that was available to them. So I definitely recommend that highly. I don't think you can go any further in depth than that. 
at this point in time. Unless someone gets Steven Spielberg on a good day, you know, hands him a fucking few drinks and is like, hey, Steven, tell us all about Poltergeist. Hey, maybe the homestead will come in and get him to talk. You never know. <laughs> uh, so leading off from there, let's get to the film itself. And I think there's nothing more important than talking about that center family unit that this whole crazy thing happens to the Freelings. What do you think about the family as a whole and overall the cast? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I want to touch on something first before we get into the family itself, the setting of the movie, because what the film does is explores the darker side of suburbia. Um, and it also serves as a sub subversion of what the audience expects out of a haunted house movie. Think about it. When you think about haunted house movies, you visions in your mind manifest of like a creepy old mansion with cobwebs everywhere. And this movie showed that hauntings can happen anywhere, even in a middle-class neighborhood. Um, the the house itself is located in Simi Valley, California, right? Which you visited the location. Yes. Yeah, I had to make sure I mentioned that uh, on our family trip to California a few years ago. Um, I knew we were going by it. It was totally out of the way, like an hour and 45 minutes or whatever. Uh, we were on our way to San Francisco, honestly. And I was like, hey, man, the Poltergeist house. We had already done all of the original Halloween locations. I had seen the Nightmare on Elm Street house on that trip. And I said, listen... If I can get anything else out of this trip, please let me have this one. And the wife was like, sure, I'd like to see that. And it looked, the house looks exactly like it did in the film. Those little trees that were out front that are tiny little saplings in the, in the movie are gigantic trees now covering the front of the house. So that's the only thing is that it kind of covers the front of it. But that whole neighborhood looks as generic as fuck as it does in the movie. They all look like factory made homes a development, if you will, but it was an amazing feeling seeing that and there was nobody around. So it was almost like a ghost town. Uh, it wasn't like the opening of the movie where you see, you know, kids playing tricks on the guy carrying his fucking whole. He's got like a case of beer when he's riding a bike, uh, you know, to, to, to watch the football game. There's there's there was no one out there. So um, amazing opportunity. Definitely. If you're a fan of this, you have to see this house because who knows one day they might remodel the shit out of it like the Chief Brody house from Jaws. And when, then when you see it, you're like, well, it's kind of the same house and it's not really the same house, but it happened here kind of. So uh, it was, it was, it was an amazing experience for sure. Yeah. That's awesome that you got to see it. And you brought something up that I want to touch on too, is the, the, how the neighborhood is like this cookie cookie cutter neighborhood. It's because it's really embodying the American dream or the, the American ideal. You, it, it takes place during the eighties. So you had this thriving economy and you had these like th this quaint picture, perfect suburban setting in which to, to place a, a, a horror film. And, but, but it's like a deconstruction. The whole movie is like a deconstruction of that. I, that whole ideal um, where it takes this like little family, this, this nuclear family and it plunges it into this, hellish nightmare and then you literally see at the end the house implode in on itself so oh god that's still one of my favorite effects in the entire movie and that shit still holds up zero cgi man like sorry to get so excited about that but when you mentioned that when i rewatched the film prior to this discussion i was like oh my god how did they do that you know it's such an amazing traditional old school effect Definitely. It's impressive. And it has, as I, as I said, a kind of a symbolic uh, meaning as well. But so within within that uh, 
idea, though, what makes this movie work is the relatable human characters. And that's what I think Spielberg, above all, I think that's what Spielberg is best at. He's so skilled at showcasing the dynamic of this very, you know, clean, likable American family, but they're not too clean so that they become like a Stepford family because you have Steve and Diane, the parents, you know, they smoke grass. You have the teenage daughter who's getting into all sorts of shenanigans um, well we know what she's getting into <laughs> then you we ha- know for sure what she's getting into some dude's bed but it, it, they don't show it so it's still clean though right yeah it, like i said it they're re- relatively clean and then you have you know the kids all fight amongst themselves and call each other names like you know doo-doo head or whatever as siblings do so you know the characters have layers to them to make them relatable um And they're just good enough so that you care about them when bad things start happening to them. 100%. And I think not only is that because of Steven Spielberg, but the cast. And this is something that they wanted right at the beginning. uh, That's what Toby really wanted was unknowns, pretty much. I mean, they didn't want any giant stars in this thing. And I think it works extremely well. Now, for me, growing up, before I'd even seen this, there's a little show from the 90s that my father loved to watch coach and that starred craig t nelson as like a college football coach and it was like his favorite show ever um so that's how i you know was introduced to this actor and then of course he plays the bad guy in turner and hooch all y'all motherfuckers know you love turner and hooch so don't be hating on that shit that's some early tom hanks stuff when are we Um, going to be doing a retrospective episode on turner and hooch I mean, that wouldn't be part of this series because there's no (laughs) horror in that, except for the moment when the dog Hooch, the giant mastiff, bites the dude's neck. I mean, that is pretty horrifying. You wouldn't want that to happen to you. Uh, But no, I mean, I I, I think the cast is fantastic here, uh, and especially the kids. And this is something that very rarely goes wrong in even any Steven Spielberg related movie, whether he produces it or he directs it, you know. His fingerprints, man, they're all over this thing. The casting of these kids is fantastic. Of course, we have to talk about Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, the little girl. The movie would be made or broken on this character, on this performance. And this little girl brings it like a motherfucker. She's just absolutely a pro in this thing. And, I mean, the movie opens up with something that confused you, the young man that you are, born 1993. When cable was thought of as a normal thing, not a luxury. Um, but you're like, why is the Star Spangled Banner playing in the opening of this movie? <laughs> it threw, me, like, it threw well, me for a loop. I forgot that it opened that way. Well, Loy Sauce, a little education for a young man such as yourself. Back in the day before cable was like in every single person's house, when a TV station, a local TV station would go off the air, they would usually have like a signal sound or they would play the Star Spangled Banner. And then afterward, and he would either go to snow, which everyone back from back in the day, like my day, like old man fucking days, knows what snow is. Or it would like go to like a symbol screen. And it would just stay there until transmission would occur again in the morning, like the news would come on or Saturday morning cartoons or whatever it may be. Um, but it is a point that I wanted to ask you. Do you think that it weaves itself throughout the film as a theme? Do you think it has something to do with the American way? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that, it ties into what I was saying earlier about the kind of the deconstruction of the kind there of you have it. American ideal. But I was not expecting, I forgot the film opened that way. So when I uh, was watching it and the credits are playing over the Star Spangled Banner, I texted him, I'm like, 
What what is this about? I don't remember that. So yes, thank you for that background, uh, that context, Justin. So bring it back around real quick to the to the cast because as you mentioned, you have the great parental units of Craig T. Nelson as Steve, and you think of him as the bad guy from Turner and Hooch. I think of him as Mister Incredible. When I hear him talk, I hear that voice. I just think of The Incredibles because that's what I grew up on. But He's great as like the rundown father, desperately trying to keep the family together. And he's perfectly balanced in counterpoint by Joe Beth Williams, who plays Diane, who's really the film's heart and soul. Is she not the most adorable thing you've ever seen? Like legit, like amazing, adorable. She she is. And she she's kind of like the mom everyone would want because, I mean, she, you really buy into her aching, her torment when her daughter's taken. And, um, and touching on this too, what makes this movie gripping for all ages, I feel like, is the movie taps into childhood fears that we all have or we all have had as kids. You know, uh, things that go bump in the night, shadows on your wall that make your imagination run wild, uh, being lost, being separated from your parents. Those concepts are terrifying for any child, but they're scary for parents, too, because um, it poses uh, the question to the adults in the audience, like, how far would you go to protect your family? Would you be able to make difficult decisions? Would you literally go through a doorway to hell to bring back your daughter? And that's the strength of the film is the innately human drama. Like when the film gets awash towards the end in special effects, it gets quite noisy and bombastic, but it never loses sight of the family at its center. And I think a lot of that has to do with the casting here. Um, you mentioned Heather O'Rourke. She is the face of innocence in this movie. She is the sweetest little girl. And as you said, if that performance wasn't right, or you didn't cast the right kid in that role, then the movie would fall apart. And I feel like Toby Hooper may have... <laughs> He may have uh, not learned that lesson from Spielberg because we've talked about Invaders from Mars. Let's face it. If you want to know what we're talking about, listen to our Canon Quarantine episode about Invaders from Mars. Because, yeah, that was definitely a Spielberg decision. Let's let's face it there. I'm not saying Toby's bad all around with casting, but uh, he don't know how to cast kids at all. (laughs) But, Justin, um, a certain character enters the film about halfway through, one Zelda Rubenstein. And I'd I'd like to get your perspective on this because I think when she enters the movie, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief a little bit. Did someone call the Ghostbusters? Is that what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, technically they did. I mean, they tried to call a whack ass team of the Ghostbusters. They just couldn't handle it, so they're calling in this chick. And I have to ask because I don't know the answer to this question. I'm sure you might know. Is she a little person? I don't know. I, I, but she, she's incredibly she, short. I mean, she's diminutive in stature. Okay, okay. But but I don't know if she she's she would consider herself a little person. Because I, I was debating it while I was watching it. Now is she like is she a little person or is she not quite a little person? Because she's so small compared to the rest of the cast. But here's the thing, because she has such a powerful performance in this movie. When she spouts off dialogue, I mean, I swear to God, my eyes were just glued to the screen. She's just amazing in this movie she gives this breathtaking monologue at one point where that the let's go get your daughter monologue where she it's so she has a calming presence about her but the way she performs this monologue it becomes sinister when she starts to describe the threat of the beast uh it's really it's it's chilling and how she she words it as to her it's just another child 
to us, it's the beast. Right. It's just impeccably performed. And apparently she's also a real life psychic, which no doubt is probably a reason as to why she seems so assured and comfortable in the role. She just is so great. And she does have a diminutive stature, but like this enormous screen presence when she enters the film. And uh, is there another film, Justin, that you're a fan of Zelda Rubenstein in? Um, hashtag teen witch top that that's right so that's not a that's not b-side material though i could talk for two and a half hours about teen witch (laughs) can we can we start a new nick you're listening to this you're editing this ladies and gentlemen let's ask nick can we do like another 80s series where we just talk about everything 80s because we know how much nick loves the 80s uh i know we're getting off on a tangent here but God, Teen Witch is just so fucking good. Yes, please. Thank you. I'll have another. Um, but no, again, we're going back. We're, we're jumping all over the place here. But we're having a blast with this movie. The movie really is so much fun. And that's one of the things I wanted to bring up to you. Um, it really has a fun, lighthearted feel that all early Spielberg had. It's as scary as it is fun, but also as entertaining. And it brought a different flavor to the Haunted House movie. I mean, I think that's what's really so important about this film is that leading up to this, I mean, if you think the last few haunted house movies that came out before this, like the Amityville horror, that movie's bleak as shit. I mean, it's, there's no fun to be had there, but this movie opens and we have, you know, a funny scene where the dog's going around and he's like grabbing stuff out of the bed. And also, I mean, boy sauce, was that you in the film? Did you like transport back in time? Because who the fuck eats potato chips in bed anyway? Seriously, the dog grabs like a whole bag of potato chips. I immediately thought of your constant crunching on this show. And I'm like, wow, like seriously? But the movie really starts right out from the beginning with the spooky stuff. It's not a warm opening. It is fun. You know, the lightheartedness of the Star Spangled Banner. So it's kind of easing the audience into the scary stuff. And then, of course, we see that shit's already starting to happen. Carol Ann's already starting to connect with the demons through the television. So the TV the people, is, she calls them, yeah, which is the t- creepy. Yeah, the, the TV people. And I started to think to myself, was this trying to say something about how addicted people were to television? I don't think it necessarily was. Do you? I was it really trying to say that? Because, I mean, it sucks the kid in. Like, don't let your kid watch too much TV. Like, you could there's probably- a whole line where... You, you could probably uh, read into it, and especially the ending shot of the movie where he th- basically throws the TV out of the hotel room. But I mean, I, I, yeah, that's, I mean, that's there, reading there, into it a, a little bit. There, there's a scene where, you know, she's Carol Ann sitting so close to the TV. My mom used to do this to me as well. I'd be sitting too close and she put me back like, no, it's going to kill your eyes. You're going to go blind from that. I love um, the fact that she uh, when she t- changes the channel, it's like a war movie and people being blown apart and you would allow your five-year-old daughter to watch <laughs> watch a movie like that. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some commentary there. Probably. But I think overall, to, to end on a high note here with the family aspect, we both agree the family is extremely solid. And I think that the original concept of hiring not no-name actors, but, you know, smaller character actors instead of big stars worked out perfectly, not only for the budget, of course, for a a small budget horror film such as this, um, but to really make you feel for these family members. Because in a lot of situations at this point in time in movies, when you'd have like a big star at the forefront, it'd really take away uh, the attention you'd give. Like, oh, well, that's just 
so-and-so, you know, whoever it may be. And in this case, you feel like these are real people. And I think they perform perfectly together. It feels like a cohesive unit. When things start to happen at the house, like the first big trick, the chairs. When they're in the kitchen and the chairs just stack up on the table and then they start playing around with it. Well, this is kind of fun. Like, oh, is this what we're going to do with this? And Steve comes home from a long day of work and Diane's like, hey, check this out. And, you know, they're doing the whole the chair moves down into the center of the kitchen trick and then having Carol Ann do it. There's a sense of fun to that. You're not necessarily scared of that. And I think, again, going back to that, this brought a sense of a, a fun, like a, a popcorn movie kind of feel to a horror movie. You had never seen anything like that before in this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, if it were me, I if a chair moved on its own in my house, I would I would run out screaming. And You're saying the same thing my wife said the entire movie, but I said... Babe, it's a movie. The movie's called Poltergeist, Suspension of Disbelief. If, you know, walking into this movie, if you don't know that and you're not going to accept that, it ain't going to work for you. The dog has the right idea. There's a part where they they send uh, the, the, the son away in a taxi and the dog... <laughs> The dog doesn't even hesitate. It just jumps right in that taxi like, bye, bitch. Like, he's so ready to get out of the house. I don't blame him. Um, but you mentioned, yes, the film's called Poltergeist. Should the movie be called Poltergeist? Because they make a distinction in the movie that Poltergeist, the spirit of a poltergeist, is attached to a specific person, whereas a haunting is a spirit associated with a place. And then you find out at the end of the movie that the spirits are associated with that certain the plot place. of land. Yeah, with that place. I, yeah, I, I don't, you know what? But if but if the movie was called Haunting, <laughs> it wouldn't have the same effect. I think Poltergeist is a much better title. The, you know what? They, they, they could have just gone with the title Demons, or they could have gone with the title Ghost, because that hadn't been taken yet. Poltergeist so is perfect. Fine. But Poltergeist is way better. So I'm I'm not going to cut the movie down in any way for that. But having the title of your movie being that and then having that whole monologue about that later on in the movie, which is very well done, mind you, um, very descriptive. I love how there are scenes that kind of feed information to the audience because a lot of people probably wouldn't understand this kind of thing. And I think if you left the family just there in peril the entire time and didn't have anyone coming into the situation to try to help and explaining things to the audience and they'd be extremely confused by this like okay i was curious i looked up siskel and ebert's review of poltergeist oh no yeah i'm pretty sure gene didn't like it gene gave it a thumbs down and one of his main complaints was they don't explain any of the scary stuff and first of all I, i wonder what movie he watched because first of all there is much time devoted to explaining exactly what is up with the spirits. I mean, one may even say a little bit too much and then when se- you consider it in modern terms. And then second of all, I don't think that's a fair criticism because a lot of horror movies is fear of the unknown. So if they, you know, if, if they expounded too much upon it, then it would lose the fear factor of the mystery and the mystique of the spirits. But Siskel and Ebert, as much as I love them, I don't always agree with their criticisms. Uh, so we'll leave it at that. But I almost never agree with them, but I still love them more than anything in the world because they're entertaining to watch. And that's that's what it's all about.
Getting back to the movie, though, I mean, like I said, I think that explanation works very well here because the way that it builds the film, you know, it adds like a mythic quality to the situation and it, it makes the audience feel even more tension. It continues to build and build and, oh, you get to understand more about what this is. There is always the fear of the unknown because you don't know what's going to pop up around the corner. You don't know what's going to happen to this family when you watch this thing for the first time. So there's always that mystery and that suspense there, uh, especially the way that the movie is set up. Um, and accentuating that that building tension is the technical aspects that I think we need to delve into a little bit, especially let's start off with the score. Justin, oh, talk about the God. score a little bit. Oh, God. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith in his prime, there's nothing that can beat that. I mean, this is one of the first productions that Steven Spielberg did that did not include John Williams, even though he only produced the film um, and co-directed it. There's like a very interesting feel to this. It's very otherworldly, very otherworldly quality that it's it, that it, very similar to Alien, if you will. Um, it's spooky and it revs up the terror, but it also has this very happy, upbeat family tone, almost like what you'd hear in like an 80s sitcom that gives you a safety net in a lot of parts of the movie. Like the score brings you in and makes you feel like you're safe and comforts you. And then in the next scene, it destroys you. It tears you apart. It terrifies you. And that's the, my favorite thing about it. And, and that theme, that opening theme there, his main theme that goes throughout the movie, it's so iconic. And I think it doesn't get as much love because it is lumped in with Alien and a few of his other earlier works in the early 80s that are very similar, like a lot hits a lot of the same musical notes. But I mean, that score, when shit hits the fan, Moisos, man, those strings go high and it gets very bombastic. And I have to give a lot of credit to this movie. It did something that I hadn't seen a lot up until this point in the style and the way that it looks. But I'm telling you right now, if this movie was released right now in 2020, when you walked into the theater, you would see a sign that gave you a warning for possible seizures due to the nature of how many strobe effects fucking blur into your eyes at the end of this movie. I'm sitting there watching it with my wife, who again has refused to watch this thing with me for the last couple of years, and it almost blinds you how crazy they go with the strobe effects later on in the movie. Absolutely. I, I do love the lighting in, in this film. Uh, it definitely creates an air. I especially love the scene where uh, Zelda Rubenstein's character goes into the bedroom and there's the light emanating from the, the closet. And the just the way that scene is shot is so immaculate. And the special effects as well, uh, I think for its time, and they still do hold up. Um, the, the effects were headed by Richard Edlund, who created the special effects for Star Wars and the Wizards at Industrial Light and Magic. Um, Nominated for an Academy Award that year. Very much so. So not all of the effects have aged well. There's some compositing effects oh, that don't really look all that great. But, here he comes. But a lot of the effects are still spectacular to witness. Things that just like will haunt you forever. What do you think about the effects, Justin? I think they're great. I mean, there's always going to be something that, in parentheses, doesn't age well. 
depending on how you look at it. I mean, if you look at it within modern standards, sure, it didn't age well. But for me, looking at it in circa 1982, um, everything looks as top-notch as it would, considering the budget of the thing. Um, I mean, it had a relatively small budget. I mean, even for 82, a $10 million budget was still very small. And think about the majority of that budget was in the effects. But they went fucking bonkers with them and they went over the top. Everyone likes to cite Ghostbusters a lot, but that didn't come for another couple of years. A lot of what, a lot of the effects you see in Ghostbusters were pioneered by what you saw in Poltergeist, what was done in Poltergeist concerning the ghost effects. I mean, you can tell that this movie was influential. I mean, in so many ways, but especially as it relates to how ghosts were portrayed on film. I have to be honest with you. There are moments in this movie. Uh, later on, especially when the white creature, the white demon comes the beast, out yeah. of the beast, comes out of the doorway. And there's a certain note that Goldsmith hits in his score. It sounds and feels like Ghostbusters. Yeah. So one could say that Ghostbusters would have to immediately be influenced by this film. We wouldn't definitely not have Ghostbusters if we didn't have Poltergeist. I mean, this movie was so fresh to the time, and that's why I think it still holds up so well now, which I know we'll get to in a little bit here, but it's hard for me not to think of that. Watching it almost 40 years later, and I'm like, wow, they're pioneering something that no one even knew what they had at that time. When you think of haunted house movies, you think of the cold, bleak, the castle as you said earlier on in the review, you think of that gothic quality to everything. This basically did what Halloween did with you know, the modern slasher. It took it from being in the gothic castles and put it in the suburbs. But it also aesthetically made it an event movie. It wasn't just a horror film. It was a blockbuster movie, too. It had these amazing special effects that you had to go see the movie for. And it also, it didn't dumb the movie down. It didn't water it down. It didn't neuter it, but it also made it accessible for kids because then kids could go, oh, my God, that's scary and cover their eyes. But that looks really cool. It's not just, you know, a guy coming out of a closet with a knife or a, a giant monster coming out of the dark. It was done fantastically and brilliantly. So I got to ask you this, Justin, what is, in your opinion, the scariest scene in Poltergeist? Oh, my God. You're going right for the nuts, man. You're trying to <laughs> chop them off really quick. That's a really difficult question. I mean, there are so many amazing scare moments in this movie. But if it was me, I know people are going to give me shit for this and go, you should have went for the other one. But it's got to be the tree. It's got to be the evil tree coming through the window and grabbing Robbie and just ripping him from his bed. They initiate early on his fear of this tree. And I can totally relate to this feeling as a kid because I had an open window without a blind. Yes, my parents were evil. They allowed <laughs> me to have it. And I used to look up at it. It was above my bed, right above my bed. And it was at a spot in the house where someone could technically climb up on that and get in the window. So I hated it. It made me so scared all the time. So I would just look up at it. Every night until I'd fall asleep, I was just so scared of someone coming in or a monster coming in or something. And we see early on, he hates this tree and, you know, the storm comes in 
He's upset. He goes to his dad's bed and he comes back in and tells him how wise the tree is and how it's been there for so long. It's there to protect him and try to ease his that fear. And then later on, the tree just fucking reaches his arm and is like, fuck you, motherfucker. You're mine. I'm going to eat the shit out of you. I'm swallowing you whole. Very evil and, dead. <laughs> yes, very evil dead. And I mean, the way that it happens, the, the way that it's portrayed, the wind is blowing. It's like a tornado. It's pouring rain. It's muddy. It's so dark and spooky. And that fear of like you being a kid getting sucked into this giant train, your parents, they're helpless. They can't help you. And you're almost there. You're almost in the mouth of this thing. You're almost completely gone. That to me, having your parents helpless in front of you screaming while they can't help you and you asking for their help is probably the most terrifying thing ever. It's like drowning and you can see them 10 feet away and you're like, oh, I'm about to die. Oh, they're not going to get to me in time. I'm done. So for me, rewatching the movie, it definitely solidified that that scene is probably the most terrifying because it's the most realistic, even though no tree is going to reach into some kid's bedroom and grab him out and swallow him. But in theory, the sense of you said earlier on in the review, being in jeopardy and your parents not being able to save you. It's a very, 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 very terrifying feeling. Absolutely. I think, I mean, that's a great choice. That's definitely one of the standout scenes of the film. I know what yours is. Let's hear it. Come on, jump to the other one. Let's do it. It's got to be the mirror scene where that one oh, paranormal you're investigator. you're going there. Okay. That, okay. We'll, we'll talk about one more scene too, a runner up for me. But for me, the scene that always stuck out in my brain was the part where the, the one paranormal investigator goes into the bathroom He's washing his face off. He looks in the mirror. He sees this gash on the side of his face, and he begins to essentially tear Dude, his own face so, off. it's so, so terrifying. It's so iconic. And you tell me how the hell they got away with how gruesome that was in a PG-rated movie. It's legit like Evil Dead-level quality gore, almost. Like his gore, face yeah. just falls right off. and pg is it because he's just seeing it and it's not really happening yeah i think that's it how they be. got they got away with it it's it's a hallucination it's not really happening and and i know that spielberg and hooper fought to keep it pg because like i said this is a movie that appeals to all sorts of age demographics i think this is a great gateway horror movie it was for me certainly it was pg so it was i, I was old enough to see it technically, uh, but it still had an indelible impact on me because I remember so many of these sequences that scared me. There's no, as, as you mentioned earlier, there's no deaths in the movie, so we don't see any uh, gore or we don't see any death on screen. And we know in the end, like the family, they're all okay, but we don't know that throughout the movie. So, I mean, they're okay physically. That doesn't mean well, they're not going to get fucking fair. I mean, well, all the sequels aside, which we're not really going to touch on that deeply here, all the sequels aside, that doesn't mean they're not going to get fucking therapy for the rest of their lives. They're not going to be sitting there lying awake every single night with black circles under their eyes and taking fucking volume every single day of their life because, oh, yeah, uh, I dealt with a haunted house for like a month of my life. That is a very good point, yes. But physically, they're fine. So I think they were able to justify that PG rating. But I know many more who were absolutely traumatized by the clown puppet it is the most iconic let's face it this is the scene that for most people call their phobia as they call it 
the fear of clowns. That's, it started here. Yeah, that's where it stems from. First of all, who would have a clown puppet such as this just hanging out in their room? I wouldn't personally. That's just me. And I, the kid doesn't like it. All right. You tell me who doesn't want this fucking kid's room. All right. He's got an alien poster on the wall. He's got a Darth Vader poster. He's got a Star Wars bedspread. He's got Legit, a dude. He's got the Kenner, a Chewbacca. The Kenner action figures. He's got the Kenner action figures. He has the Darth Vader action figure holder. He's got the Chewbacca jacket. He's got <laughs> fucking every. He sleeps with Yoda for God's sake. He's got a Yoda doll. He sleeps with his little sister is chewing on Luke Skywalker at one point in the movie. Product placement. Yes, I'm sure George Lucas came on the set and said, Stephen, can you please make sure you put some Star Wars stuff in here, please? Yeah, that definitely happened. But th th the room is awesome. That clown does not fit. And the whole time my wife is going to be, she's going to be that cliche, you know, she's going to be that archetype of audience member that shouldn't be in the room. Take that out of the room. Why would you have that in the room? Just get rid of it. it and it, it is slightly true. You have to you, you have to critique that a little bit because the kid doesn't like it. Why is the clown there? You, they don't they don't initiate at all that that anyone likes it, that either of the kids like the clown. Why is it there? I don't know, but it's a great setup for one of the best jump scares in horror movie history. When 100 percent when when he begins to feel a presence in the room. He's terrified. He looks under the bed. Nothing's there. He sits back up and the clown's right there, jumps right from behind him and strangles him basically. And it's horrifying because the clown's face has completely changed. It's a demon clown. There's nothing scarier yes. than that. Well, I mean, the clown was scary to begin with. <laughs> I, know. I mean, innocent clowns, I think are just as scary as scary clowns. Now, not to correct you or anything, but what I love about that scene is when he looks, it's in the chair. Now, earlier on in the film, it was in the chair. It was scaring him. He throws the jacket over it, and it comforts him. He goes to bed. Clowns are not a part of anything that's happening. In this scene, he tries to do the same thing. The way that it's shot is so amazing because it zooms in on the kid, Robbie, and then it goes back to the chair, and the clown's gone. So then it deals with that underlining fear we had as kids the monster under the bed it plays with that i think more so than any other movie up until that point had done he looks under the bed that's something that's so difficult to do as a kid when you're scared of what's under the bed for you to actually reach down and look but then it gives you a sigh of relief there's nothing there the clown it's the clown's not there nothing's happening but he comes up pops out the clown and he has the evil demon face and what's even crazier is during that sequence, during the shooting of that scene, Oliver Robbins, who played Robbie, did all of that himself. And apparently it's been said that the clown prop that went around his neck actually ended up choking him on one of the takes. It went too tight around his neck. So it legitimately terrified him. I don't know if that take is the one that's in the movie, but you could tell the kid's legit fucking scared out of his wits during this. I mean, just look at that clown. Yeah, uh, and the clown arm going around his neck and, and it being too tight in that one take. Uh, there's a lot of, shall we say, strange occurrences, strange happenings surrounding the film. Curse. Uh, let, let me ask you this first, Justin. Um, do, do you believe in ghosts? I, I'm curious. 
Do you you believe? Okay. I do. I 100% believe in some type of spiritual life in this world, on this planet. There is, there's something out there. I don't necessarily believe in that. I'm going to open my bathroom door one day and see a ghost in there taking a piss or jacking off on my toilet. I don't, maybe that will happen, but I don't necessarily believe in that way. But, do, do you, I do. I do think there's a spiritual world. Yes. Do you believe in curses? Do you believe a film could be cursed? Um. Have you ever seen Suicide Squad? <laughs> yes, that's the very definition of a cursed film, if you ask me. So, my point in bringing that up, Justin, is that these strange happenings surrounding the film and the actors uh, led many to believe in what became known as the Poltergeist curse. Can you talk a little bit about this, Justin? Fill our audience in. There's a death curse. Oh, wrong movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the wrong episode. That was the episode before this, but it, there is a death curse. Um, it is an urban legend based around the fact that there have been several unfortunate deaths of actors who appeared in the entire Poltergeist franchise and other strange events. Um, if you're interested, if you can find it on YouTube, my favorite thing to watch regarding this and I know many of you listening, this is way before your time, even maybe you, Loisos, but there used to be this series that used to be on E, the channel E, E, True Hollywood Story. I grew up watching these fucking things. Um, Curse of the Poltergeist from 2002. Great episode. It covers this in detail. Um, but there are a bunch of things that happened. Um, in 1982, Dominique Dunn, who played Dana, the teenager in the movie, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend when he strangled her to death. So tragic. So that, 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 that's the first thing. Um, we have Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, who played Carol Ann uh, in the, the two sequels, and died while making the third film. She had an extreme strange disorder that no doctor at the time could figure out what it was, and they were kind of diagnosing it wrong and she ended up dying while making the third film yeah they thought it was crohn disease right so the crohn's disease so they misdiagnosed her and she went into septic shock because she wasn't getting the treatment that she needed so yeah 1988 uh sadly heather o'rourke passed um and so yeah the events surrounding this uh film you know they're certainly eerie they're certainly tragic i think i don't i don't believe in curses necessarily i think when things happen that are unimaginably tragic or that we can't explain we invent a sort of mythology as a way to do you want me to put a curse on you and make sense we'll of it well <laughs> we'll see how how it works in six months from now i mean we could try it and see how you feel about it then well it's much like the my, my feelings on ghosts i'm a skeptic on ghosts i think we as human beings create phenomena to help us cope with things we don't understand so that's where i'm that that's where I view this, but there is that sense of mystique around the circumstances of this film, and I think it stemmed back to the, to the fact that they used real skeletons on set. Yes, the real skeletons. So when Joe Beth Williams playing Diane in the film goes into that, they're they're trying to build a pool in the backyard. That doesn't look like the proper way to build a pool, but fair enough. They used real skeletons. In the scene where she's at the end, which don't fuck with me here. Don't don't even try to, you know, you can't fake this. It feels like 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, when she goes into that water and the skeletons are going around her. That's pure early Steven Spielberg. And you could tell. I mean, if you ever get the opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, be sure to watch the HBO produced Spielberg documentary all about him. He, there's actually scenes with his sisters talking about how he loved to lock them in closets and then scare them to death. So Spielberg loves to scare people. Um, and that scene definitely feels like a moment where he's trying to scare the audience. But people like to pinpoint the fact that real skeletons were used. And it is true. They did use real skeletons. But as the people involved with the film had mentioned on many occasions, real skeletons were a shitload cheaper than fake ones at the time. So are you going to use a real skeleton? Or are you going to use fake ones? So... For me, as the cinephile that I am and the horror lover I am, yes, I'm bloodthirsty. Give me the real thing. Put a real head in that shot. Not really, but a real skeleton will do. And I mean, when people heard that back then, that caused a lot of hype because people didn't know about how movies are made like they know now. All the behind the scenes, the commentaries, the documentaries, the retrospectives that podcasts do. Back then, it was just if you saw one little news brief about, yeah, we used real skeletons in this scene, it would cause the audience when they saw the movie to be terrified. That was how audiences reacted. So, I mean, it did stem from that. But make no mistake, Loisos, the rest of what happened to that cast, you can't fuck with it, man. It's it's spooky as hell. I mean, there's a lot to dive into when it comes to that. I mean, a lot of people involved with this franchise... Not only did death occur to them, but some of them had bad careers, too, which could be technically looked at as a negative thing as well. But yeah, uh, well, for all I know, it's possible that that the poltergeist could be cursed. So is the poltergeist curse real? We mentioned it earlier, but the documentary series Cursed Films is excellent, and it goes into all of this in much more detail. Yes, so definitely check that out. But I think for me, growing up, knowing that about this movie, it was definitely one of the things that led me to it even more. I mean, who doesn't want to watch a movie that holds this kind of weight when you think about real life responses to just a a movie being a movie? It's not just a haunted house movie, people. And I think that's what makes this movie so special, aside from all the hoopla with the the, the curse. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really I do think this movie hold such a special place in the world of Hollywood horror. You said it perfectly. This is a gateway horror movie, but it still will scare the pants off any adult. My wife watched it with me the other night. I've been trying to get her to watch it with me. She hates clowns. And also, we have to have the door connected to our bathroom open exactly the same amount connected to the light source every single night. So I can't close it all the way and I can't open it all the way because then she'll see the mirror because she's scared of ghosts and clowns. So when I watched this movie with her, I you know gave her a huge thumbs up. I gave her a big pat on the back because I can see where this movie would really scare people. And it, it still holds up, I think, 100% in every possible way. Definitely. And this movie had somewhat of a... a, a of a influence or impact in the genre you see it in movies like insidious and paranormal activity and the conjuring very much inspired by poltergeist and in fact those movies couldn't exist if not for poltergeist um 
the film itself had two sequels. It had uh, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side in 1986, and Poltergeist 3 in 1988, as we discussed. And recently, it was announced that the Russo brothers of the Marvel Cinematic Universe fame was going to be helming uh, a remake. There was a, a remake already, a 3D version. Five years ago. Starring Five years Sam ago. Rockwell. Yeah. But uh, no one remembers that. No one cares. I, I remember seeing it, and I don't remember a goddamn thing about it. I saw it uh, right down the street at the AMC that's literally a mile away from me. I saw it with a co-worker because no one wanted to go see it with me. So I went and saw it. I gave it an open opportunity. And it is very forgettable. Um, Rockwell's performance is very solid. but. That leads me to the idea of the Russos doing another one. Can you make an effective poltergeist? Now, I'm not saying can you make an effective haunted house movie, because we're very aware that that is an ongoing genre that continues to spit out generic movies. If theaters were open right now, I'm saying every three to four months, we get a new haunted house movie. But I'm saying, can you give us a new poltergeist something that's new and fresh something that will kind of set a new wave of movies in the genre and really stand on its own i'm sorry but i have to say i don't think so i don't think it's possible right now um the indies have tried and they get close but it's hard to do something that hasn't been done already and i think this is where poltergeist really shines is that we hadn't seen anything nearly like it ever leading up to it so when you saw this movie it was so fresh and different and upbeat, but so ter- scary and terrifying. Um, we've seen all that before. I think for all intents and purposes, Insidious is basically another Poltergeist remake. So it, it, in order to, as you said, in order to uh, justify a remake, you need to offer something new. And I don't know exactly what they could do if they bring it back to old school scares. Because I think what happened in the Poltergeist remake is that uh, I remember the CGI just taking me straight out of the movie. And I know we talked about the extensive special effects of the original, but those hold up uh, because of the practicality of it, because they use optical illusions and all of that. And nostalgia. Let's let's make that and clear nostalgia. as well. A lot of it is nostalgia, but, but that's that's us in the Epic Film Guys podcast. Well, the, these two, at least. But, you know... Um, I don't have any reason to doubt the Russo brothers necessarily. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if that even actually gets made. It was announced, but of course, uh, due to this pandemic, everything's kind of been put on hold a little bit. But all of that aside, I'm going to wrap this up by saying that I think Poltergeist is an outstanding piece of work. It's bold. It's imaginative. It's funny, intense. It's emotional. It's a total blast. And of the many, many horror films, the glut of which was released in the 80s, this was a watershed film and easily one of the best to come out during that period. So final thoughts on Poltergeist, Justin. We've talked about this at length, but bring it home. I mean, I could keep going on about it. I mean, there's so many things in this movie that we didn't touch on that I really wanted to. I mean, think about how this movie was placed during a decade where the haunted house movie really wasn't the popular kid on the block. It was the slasher, you know, it was the creature feature and this did have some of that, but um, it gave the ghost movie a new life. Uh, brought it back to life from the grave and really let it flourish all over and haunt people all over the United States. It was a huge hit. Um, it was the eighth highest grossing movie of the year. And it was the number one horror movie of that year. 
I still like to think about the possibilities. The master of darkness himself, Dean Cundy, was originally supposed to do the cinematography for this movie, but when he was asked to do it, he remained faithful to his original team and decided to do Halloween 2, directed by Rick Rosenthal instead. So Matthew Leonati did the film instead, but one could imagine this movie with the dark, deep, pure passion that Cundy would bring to his movies. Um, there's so much you could think about with this movie, but I mean, what it comes down to for me, it's nostalgic, it's classic and everything about what makes a good haunted house movie remains here. A solid family core unit, great performances and a mythic nature to the situation. We have a whole backstory to this thing that's written that you'd never really experienced up until this point in a haunted house movie. You were just led to believe, oh, a, a ghost is in this house. So, you know, check off the fucking boxes and fill in the blanks. The normal, typical fare will occur. Here, they brought something different, a flavor to this thing that was so fresh and invigorating. And thank you, Steven Spielberg for creating this and thank you toby hooper for taking part and thank those brilliant minds for coming together and yes kathleen kennedy yes everyone likes to hate her now but she's a great producer frank marshall um, too yeah yeah frank marshall as well those guys yeah you'll see their names on jurassic park and everything you can think of um but i mean we have blabbed on about this thing but it is something to be celebrated it is one of the best horror movies ever made. And this is a movie that I can tell you can show your 10 year old. Seriously, make them scared by this. It may benefit them. Builds I mean, character. for me growing up. Yeah, 100%. It, it's not going to, I don't think, traumatize them to the extent where, you know, they're, they're going to need therapy like the people in the movie would. But I mean, it's fun to be scared. You go to an amusement park. You go jump on that roller coaster because you want to ride a roller coaster ride. You want to be scared. You want to feel that suspense. You want to feel that tension. You want to feel like you had a rush. And that's what Poltergeist gives you. It gives you everything you need, but all the B-movie stuff, all that stuff that we usually talk about on this show, the gory deaths, it's not here. This is horror done right for a family and something that will live on forever as one of the most important seminal films of the genre of all time. Saloy sauce, there it is. Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. Will we talk about the sequels? It's entirely possible. I've never seen that episode. Ever? Nope, never. Ever, ever? Never, ever. Ever, ever? <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. That's something that just gets me so pumped up so much horror left to something? discover yeah so we can talk about it on a later episode but ladies and gentlemen we'd like to thank you so so much for listening again the response we got to our friday the 13th 40th anniversary episode really made us very clear on our future path for this segment on the epic film guys we know you guys love what you're hearing and we want to give you more of it so let us know what you want to hear more of if there's certain titles you want to hear comment those in the comment section on this post and let us know what you think of the episode we do this for you because we enjoy doing it and we know you are here along with us hanging out talking about these movies movies that we all want to talk about and think about we love watching them and we love hearing from you so 
Boy Sauce, if they want to find us on the internet, where can they find us? They can find us wherever good podcasts are available. Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Look us up, and you can also follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Epic Film Guys. And feel free to join in the discussion in our Facebook group, The Hobster's Dumpster, where you can hang out with us, chat with us about movies, and also get exclusive behind-the-scenes stuff. So we, that is going to be facebook.com slash groups slash guys. We'd love to have you join the family. We would. And again, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. You guys make us what we are. We love you. You literally are the blood flow in our veins pumping our heart on a daily basis. We wouldn't do what we do without you, and we wouldn't want to do it without you. And until next time, we will see you at the movies.